Welcome to the Bad Boss Brief, a strategic guide on how to not be an asshole at work. We'll tell you about bad bosses, how they can be handled, how to tell if you happen to be one. An executive and an executive coach, both artists working in advertising and marketing for more than two decades, are here to advise you on the ins and outs of office environments. The Bad Boss Brief is your ultimate guide to navigating any employment landscape. Without any further ado, here are your hosts, Eugene S. Robinson and Stephanie Payrollo. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> hey, I'm Stephanie Payrollo. I'm Eugene S. Robinson. I forgot I had a momentary lapse who I was. <laughs> this is the Bad Boss Brief. Today, we're going to talk about the addicted boss. We're going to talk about addiction at work. And when I speak of addiction, I mean alcoholism, addiction, the whole nine yards. And I have certainly worked with and for people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol. But I want to say up front that my perspective is also influenced by the fact that I am a recovering alcoholic. I've been sober for a long time. And I believe two things about alcoholism and addiction. The first thing is, is that it's a disease. Right? And it's you can't talk someone out, of, someone out of a disease. They can't promise you that they won't be sick. And the second thing is, is that addiction is a disease that impacts all of the people around the addict or alcoholic. Right. So obviously, if your loved one has cancer or diabetes, you're impacted, but they won't be stealing your car. So I guess I want to start with that because some people think that the disease model is a cop-out or it can be. What do you think? I mean, people use alcoholism as addiction as an excuse for bad behavior. Do you think it's a disease? Well, the closest thing I've been able to come is sex addiction. <laughs> you know, and people don't take you seriously if you talk about sex addiction. But uh, no, I, I believe it, it. It is actually a disease. Having had people in close to me in my life who have been who have been uh, affected, um, and you don't realize that until you see. Or I, 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 I'm, it's going to sound weird and pejorative until you see a real alcoholic. Like I had a friend, and I never put it together. Like yeah, yeah, the person likes to drink until I saw him in action. And it was like a, a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing. And w one beer was not was not even in the realm of possibilities. Once he had that one during the course of an evening, I watched him drink every single one that was in the house that was meant for other people. And I tried to stop him. I'm like, hey, uh, you know, kind of gentle. But after that first one, he wasn't even able to hear. And I was like, OK, I got you. I got you. It's a disease, <laughs> you right. know. And, and it's especially challenging when you're working for yes. or with an addict or alcoholic. I had a situation where I was working in an ad agency and the senior creative person who was very talented was, well, I mean, it's not mine to judge, but every day at lunch, he would go out and he would smoke marijuana in the parking lot. And this was a long time ago. It wasn't legal anywhere. And he would come in and he would be great to work with. He'd be all smiles, helpful, collaborative, wonderful. Then the next morning, he'd come in in the morning and he would be angry, probably hungover or something. And he would be just, it was like, it was Jekyll and Hyde. And he was so horrible until noon when he'd go outside, stand, he literally stood behind the building, got high and then came in, wreathed in smiles. And I remember talking to the big boss and saying, look, everybody knows this, including the big boss. It's terrible for morale that he gets to spend half the day being a horrible person to everyone. You need to deal with this. But the big boss didn't want to mess with it because he was this guy was a creative. 
He was talented. I think there's sort of a myth that, well, creatives are going to be alcoholics and addicts. It's part of their mysterious genius. I also think it's not an accident that both of these people were white men. Well, also, we're, we're still talking business. I mean, I had a, a guy who worked for me, a creative, and he was having, having a problem with crystal meth, which, which redounded to him working 23-hour days. He goes to his boss and says, listen, I'm having a problem with crystal meth right now. And his boss looks at him and says, if money's a problem, <laughs> you see, the boss didn't give a shit. <laughs> as long as this guy was willing to work 23 hours a day, whatever he put in his system was fine with that boss. So, you know, the guy says, oh, well, we don't know. We don't really want to interfere. I think, yeah, if the guy's not producing and doing that, maybe they interfere. As long as he's producing, you know, this is... Uh, this is not a friendly system, this capitalism sometimes. That is true. I think probably most of the time. So yeah. you know, one of the things is if you have a boss who is an addict, what should you do? And I kind of outlined two paths, right? The first path is if you're working with someone who's an alcoholic or an addict and you have power, Mm-hmm. then you're going to want to set some consequences for them, right? Mm-hmm. So don't be like the people that we've talked about and just ignore it. Go to HR. You also want to make sure that you are aware of the legal ramifications. Some HR people know you know, the number for a good employment lawyer. Some don't. This is definitely one where you want to get the legal perspective in your state or jurisdiction. But I think you should set some consequences. And mm-hmm. I think another key thing is that you know, I, people forget there's a saying that like an alcoholic will steal your wallet and an addict will steal your wallet and help you look for it. <laughs> and, you know, I think, I and I say, I say this as a person in recovery, right? Um, we are not known for our truth telling, right? Um, so if you do have somebody who has a problem, don't, don't believe anything that they're saying, right? Don't believe them when they say they're going to quit. Don't believe them when they say it's just a weird interaction with their antibiotics. Just don't believe them, right? And continue to take the action. The other thing that's interesting is that, you know, so Alcoholics Anonymous started in this country many, many years ago. And there is a kind of an idea that the way to get sober has to be in a 12-step program and it has to be total abstinence. And the reality is that, you know, evidence-based medical treatments for alcoholism and addiction have come a lot farther, right? So in the in the early days when AA was started, there was nothing else, right? It was like, you're going to die, end up in an institution or end up in jail. Now there's really effective medications where you, you know, get a medication and water and wine have the same impact on your body. And so I just, you know, I think that we've seen so much in uh, kind of culture on TV. Every TV show has some addict and or alcoholic, and you know, if they get sober, they're going to relapse. And they talk about sponsors and they talk about going to meetings and that works for a lot of people, but it's not, it's not mandatory anymore. Right. Hey, tell me if, if, if I have a boss who's got a a drug problem, can I call the police on him? (laughs) Well, I'm just trying to think out of the box here. Actually, though, you know what? Unfortunately, that's like the second part. If you are working with someone or working for someone who has a drug problem, you have to actually protect yourself from that, right? So like if you if you have that situation and you don't have power, then you need to be really careful. And And one of the things to be careful about is don't ever get in a car with that person. And I'm not talking about drinking and driving, which of course, obviously you want to be mindful of not driving with someone who's impaired, 
But I know of women who have gone to a work event gotten in the back of a taxi cab with their drunk male boss and he has assaulted yeah. them. Yeah. So, you know, and I think that, I think the challenge with alcoholism and addiction is, you know, it's a disease where people pretend they don't have a disease or they really believe they don't have a disease and, and they can convince other people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and I think it's hard because I think, you know, especially women were taught to kind of, you know, sometimes second guess ourselves yeah. And, you know, I've had, I, I literally had somebody come into my house who was stinking of booze mm-hmm. and I was like, so you've been drinking. And she was like, no, it's this antibiotic that I take. It makes my yeah. breath smell like beer. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. You know, and it's hard yeah. to see. And I think, especially with drugs, I remember, I remember at college, I mean, you know, we were there at the same time. There was a very robust cocaine culture that was happening. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do drugs at that time. Right. And I didn't know what it was. And I remember going to a concert and saying to my friend, Catherine, that guy's just very, he's very nervous. He seems like a very nervous guy. Yeah. She just looked at me like he's a cocaine addict, yeah, <laughs> you know, right, but I think, right. I think that's the trouble at work is that a lot of times people, particularly if they don't know about addiction, mm-hmm. they don't, they can't tell because you can't smell oxy on somebody's breath, but right, they right. know that something's off. And so that's what I would recommend is like, if you think something is going on, mm-hmm. trust your gut and be, yep. and be careful. This is what McGruff the crime dog says, right? And I mean, I have, I've collected these horrible stories over the course of the years for some reason people tell me. And I remember a woman who is now a pretty serious executive, but who um, first job out of college gets uh, there's a company offsite or a retreat um, boss and uh, offers to drive her, picks her up at her house and they're driving to this retreat at a camping site and then discovers uh, uh, that there's nobody else at the camping site, but the two of them there. There is an actual fact. Well, you know, you're my executive assistant, so this is this is a, this is about team bonding. And of course, she was assaulted that night, um, and you know, right out of college, decided to say nothing about it um, in order to in furtherance of, of her career, which I thought was. But you know, these were this was 30, 35 years ago. These were different times for her. Um, but yeah, it's uh, you have to know that you are in an unstable place wherein anything could very possibly go. Um, and, uh, and the higher the person is up on the scale, I mean, clearly you're in the Valley now with people microdosing, um, <laughs> and, you know, is there a line between micro and macro sometimes when we're talking about psychoactives, which I, I, I strongly believe in the power of psychoactives in therapeutic settings, you know, screaming at me Monday morning, not a therapeutic setting. <laughs> so, yeah, no. Well, and I think also it's the idea of like, you know, it seems like people who microdose are like vegans. They can't stop talking about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it, it's one thing if they can microdose and they can seem to be functioning. That's one thing. But usually, I mean, aren't they talking about it quite a bit? Isn't that the point? The one, the, 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 the one, ones I've known of which there were two, uh, they talked about it quite a bit. <laughs> and and of those two, one actually maintained and the other just spun wildly out of uh out of control um and last i heard was living in a van so mm-hmm. um I, yeah. you know, he, he 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 would push off on this tendency to feel sorry for him he he structures it as these were the choices i've made to live a more fulfilled existence okay well and i think that is you know when you that's a really good point because i think that you know 
addicts and alcoholics will play on the emotions of the people around them, right? Mm -hmm. And the challenge is, is that a lot of people will buy into that, right? They'll buy into this like, you know, either he or she is such a genius or such an important part of the organization, I have to help them. But there's a lot of over-functioning, enabling, whatever you want to call it. And I find this particularly, again, with women where they feel like, oh, this, but the, I need to protect the boss. I need to take care of the boss. I need to, you know, fill in where he isn't able to do it. And I'm, I mean, we've all seen those circumstances, right? And I think the challenge is, and what I recommend is that a lot of times people don't get sober until they have an opportunity to savor the consequences of their choices. Right. And so, I mean, I've been, I know a lot of people who didn't get sober until they lost the job. They lost the wife, they lost the kids, and you have to allow people to have those experiences, and it can be hard. You know, I think I might, I think I might have lost you. You're frozen. <sighs> okay, well, I mean, I guess that's the, I guess that's the joy of um, being, doing a live podcast. So I'll just consider, continue to talk until you come back and, and we'll try it again. So if you do work for someone who is an addict or an alcoholic, don't make excuses or cover up for them. But if you feel safe going to HR or any other sort of governing entity, then you should. And again, not only could you be doing the addict a favor, but you might be helping someone else. So keep in mind, if you work in healthcare, education, transportation, the stakes are a lot higher than if you work in advertising or technology. We don't want drunk doctors or pill-popping pilots or you know, a bus driver or a teacher. And so I think it's important to recognize that like, there are places where I believe, at least morally, people who see an alcoholic or an addict need to, need to actually call that out. So, and then, you know, another thing too is like another sort of like myth about alcoholism is that there are certain people who are alcoholics and addicts. Like, you know, the cozy, sweet 50-something kindergarten teacher couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. The, you know, the nice parish priest couldn't possibly be addicted to drugs. And unfortunately, it's not something that discriminates. You can't tell by somebody's age or role in life that whether they are or are not having a problem with drugs and alcohol. Okay. So one of the other things that I think is interesting and that I want to kind of consider is, you know, it's almost, it's almost a PR cliche that a man slaps his wife in public or does something that's just terrible and awful. Oftentimes it's captured on video. It blows up on social media. And then he'll turn around and say, I'm going into treatment for alcoholism, or I have a drug problem. I'm going to, you know, go into like a, a 30 day treatment center. And there's a lot of apologies. And I guess, you know, one of the questions that I think is do you forgive people who have made those kinds of mistakes in a very public way if it is related to drugs and alcoholism? And this would be what I would ask Eugene if he was here right now. But for listeners, I just invite you to kind of consider it because I see it in two different ways. I think on the one hand, if 
a person is using alcoholism or addiction as an excuse for behavior which is horrible, then they should still be held to account for the behavior which is horrible. I mean, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I did a lot of stupid stuff when I was drunk, um, but I didn't ever hit someone. I didn't do anything that was fundamentally against my values. You know, they say in vino veritas, which is the true person comes out when you're drunk. I don't think that that is necessarily an excuse, although there is the obvious example of people who do choose to drive drunk and who get in an accident and can kill someone, um, which, you know, I know people that that's happened to, sadly, and they should go to jail and they should suffer the consequences of that. And so I think I'm torn. I feel like if, if the thing that you did when you were under the influence was clearly reprehensible or illegal, your being intoxicated or in an altered state should not be a mitigating factor to you suffering the full consequences, legal, financial, and otherwise. However, I have known of circumstances where there was someone who had a drug problem. Um, they were pretty senior in a company and they lost their job because of it. I mean, they were sent to treatment. There were some, I, I can't remember all the details, but then they got sober. And then the question is, can they be rehabilitated? At what point do they come back? Um, are they going to be given a second chance? Oh, there you are again. Hey. There you are. Sorry. We can have June edit this. <laughs> <laughs> we can, but I kept going for those of us, you know, for the people that are Good. live. Good. And I don't know if you could hear me or not, but what I was saying, could you hear what I was saying? I could. I could. Okay. So I guess that would be my question. Like, at what point do you think that we say to somebody, hey, I believe that you're sober. We're going to give you a second chance, even though last time you did, you know, something. What? How much grace should we give somebody who gets sober? You know, um, I, I have a, a, I have a, an associate who, uh, every time he started to hate his jobs, he would start drinking and he would, was non-functional uh, personally, but professionally was pretty, you know, was, was on it, but it was miserable. And, uh, his bosses would say, what, what do you need? Look, he said, I have a problem with alcohol and they would let him go off to rehab eight, eight months. Uh, he's got 80% of his salary, take yoga, do whatever. And he would come back renewed and he would re repeat this anytime he had professional difficulties by which I mean he got bored in his job. Um, I'm not saying this was contrivance. I'm just saying that's traditionally kind of what happened. And he, he continued to do it until he got into a job that the first time he went through that routine, they said, okay, let him go eight months into, into rehab. When he came back, they sat him down and said, what do you want to do? He was like, well, I'm just happy to be back. And they were like, don't give me that crap. <laughs> In your dream scenario, what do you want to do? And he was like, he realized or thought that they, these are people who were genuinely interested in seeing him succeed. And he said, I want to stop being a software engineer and I want to start doing this. And they backed his play. They bought him a studio, made him head of, you know, the, this, the studio and gave him, you know, a, a pretty significant budget. And he's done this now for 14 years and hasn't had a drink since. So um, is he is he a man? Yes, he's a man. Is he white? Well, yes, he's white. <laughs> you know, has this ever happened to me? No, it hasn't, but I don't have a drinking problem. So, um, you know, I think I, I, I'm a firm believer in sort of 
professional second chances, but uh, but I, I, I don't see them being equally applied. Um, so th- this is my concern. Um, and rather than try to up-level the system, it seems like it makes more... I it's weird that I'm arguing for this punitive thing, but it seems like since we're not going to up-level, at least let's get everybody punished equally. You know? Right, and I, don't, and I think, again, it really is giving people the opportunity to have the consequences of their choices. I mean, you know, like we should, we need to stop. And I think that goes beyond alcoholism or addiction. I think we need to have people have the consequences of their choices for sexism, for racism. I mean, it's, you know, there's, they should be held accountable. And I think the idea that there are some people who get to skate because of whatever their talent is should be stopped. Shall we do? Interesting, because of the timeout, we could go a little bit over, I think. But in an interesting turnaround, there was another guy he worked with who watched this whole thing happen and was like, had a, had, had a V8 moment, was like, wow, I'm going to do this and starts, you know, do, and then his boss says, hey, Brian, can we talk for a minute? What's wrong? And Brian goes, ah, I got a problem with crystal meth. <laughs> and they go, great, you're fired. <laughs> so, and what Brian had miscalculated is that alcohol in America is legal. Crystal meth is not. So uh, they, he made it very easy for them to say, yeah, you got a problem with illegal drugs. It's like you robbed a bank. We can't help you. We're not in the business of aiding and abetting criminality. So Brian uh, sort of played himself. So. Well, and I think, too, I mean, the, you know, the, the world in recovery circles is quite different than it used to be because, the, because of fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the challenge is now that there's a lot yes. of people that felt like they could do the occasional I mean, socially using heroin doesn't seem like it's a really su- successful strategy, but there are people who have tried it. And I know people who have tried it and died because their heroin was cut with fentanyl. Yeah. And, and these were, yeah. you know, these are, are not people who are living on the streets. These are, you know, like pretty successful white collar workers. And suddenly you're getting the message that like, wow, you know, this, this person, went out to have a party night and it turned out they got some bad drugs. And so that's the thing too, to also keep in mind is if you call somebody on this for whatever reason, you are also potentially keeping them alive because more and more drugs are being, are being cut by fentanyl. So do you want to do a, um, do you want to do a fire me section? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'd like to, at the, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, you know, I, 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 I'm going to, this guy who's now he's now a time member of the fire me club because it just it boggles my mind that the instincts could have been so right for so long and so wrong just in in that fast that like i find it really disturbing i'm talking about mark benioff this time and i did want to debut that um there are uh i got my information about Microsoft, the so Microsoft was done, and I got more information about uh, more layoffs coming up at Google, which I believe is also correct. I, I'm uh, in the spirit of of being um, not an ass. I will not mention the very specific division is coming in. So it just you know because I'm not people not listening to the show for <laughs> to to have their lives upended, but it, it's coming, and uh, and I have very good good information that that's happening. But Benioff has like said, ah, you know, he. he they were really trying to fashion Salesforce as a, you know, as your home away from home, we're your friends, we're your family. And apparently now in back channels, what he's trying to do is like, yeah, well, you know, maybe Musk, uh, Musk being Elon Musk, maybe Musk has, you know, a few things up his sleeve. Maybe we just need to, you know, tear the bandaid off quickly and do the layoffs. And, you know, people get their feelings hurt. They're going to get their feelings hurt anyway. Let's just let them get on earth and get on with business. And which I just find like, 
just so antithetical to your original mission. It reminds me of something that uh, a high-ranking executive I had heard once said, and he, I was like, aren't you concerned about the attrition rate? And they just kind of looked and shrugged, and they were like, eh, you know, people, it's fungible. <laughs> it's a fungible resource. And I was like, of course a billionaire would think that. <laughs> of course a billionaire would think that. But, you know, but I've met a few, and, uh, and Andy Grove, as tough as he was, understood the real value, I think, of, of, of human resource and, and would have been appalled had he heard that sentiment. Yeah, people do come and go, but, you know, how much do you have to tr spend training these people? How much do you have to spend, you know, adjusting for crap morale? Crap morale is not a given. doesn't have to be, you know, but these guys are still freaked out over the failure to return to, you know, five days a week of seeing people sitting at their desk when they walk through the office. And I don't think that's ever coming back. So. Well, and I think, you know, it actually ties to what you were saying earlier about capitalism and the way that people will, you know, like, go, keep using meth because you are much yep. more productive. You know, and I, I really do think that that is, that is the fundamental challenge is that for all of the name checking during the, um, do, you, do you hear an echo? No. Okay. I don't know where that's coming from. It must just be me. Um, you know, during the pandemic, there were so many corporations that were bending over backwards to talk about wellness and we care about you. And they were sending out care packages, having meeting free Mondays, having mental health days, all of this stuff. And they're trying to perpetuate this myth that like we, the employers care about you, the people that work for us until we don't. And then yep. we lay you all off, starting again, as we have referenced before, with the people who are in DEI, with people of color. And and really, this myth that corporations care for us, is yeah. it's a myth. And I think people are starting to look at it, and I think people are starting to think differently. I was talking to a, a young woman in her 20s about work, and she was saying that she and her friends are looking around after the pandemic and being like, I don't want to waste my life spending all of my time working for a soulless corporate entity. Yeah. And I don't think she's yeah. alone. And I think that with all of these layoffs, these corporate giants are saying, this is what we actually think of you. Yeah. And I think there's going to be a gap where the kids that are coming up behind us, they, they don't have mortgages yet. They don't have kids yet. They have a lot of flexibility and they may just choose to opt out. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if you read this thing. It was on Twitter. This woman, it was in the Atlantic, I believe. And this woman um, was starting her maternity leave the day Musk took over. Um, and of course, he came and just, you know, within seven days, she was jobless. And they just talked to, it's a sampling of the jobless. But of course, I'm taking note that it, this was a woman. The second person who was in the piece was an older woman says like, you know, uh, I, yeah, I'm in high tech, but I'm not a tech bro. I'm living month to month in an apartment in San Francisco. And if I didn't, you know, given my age, if I can't get a follow on gig, I'm going to have to leave. And given my age, I can't go home. There is no home for me to go to that like, oh, if things didn't work out post-college, I can go back to. And you start to see, and of course, the article was designed very much to give you the, the, the face of the human cost of reorganizations. But um, it's just, it, and it's it's just, it's hard to reconcile that with this blathering billionaire um, who who is not really, you know, could make massive mistakes like he has and still not suffer any real consequences. And, and in my understanding, as part of the article, I thought was pretty compelling that even when he goes to the toilet 
at Twitter, he has two bodyguards with him. And it's like, I'm glad you realize <laughs> that you're a man who needs two bodyguards to take a leak because uh, you shouldn't miss the fact that there are real people living real lives behind all this stuff. And look, it could be me. I I've said when I wasn't a boss, when I'm a boss, I don't want to make these mistakes, but I've never been the level of a boss where multi-millions of people are, are relying on me, you know. So maybe you have to make these tough decisions. Maybe you have to be an ass about it. You know, uh, there is a horrible quote uh, that uh, Heinrich Himmler once had, which was, a curse of a great man is to step over corpses. If I heard that from somebody who was at Goldman Sachs, I, and I'm a student of World War II history, and I had never heard that before until somebody at Goldman Sachs. I said, well, you know what Himmler said? I'm like, what? You know, that gets your attention right away. He's like, ah, the curse of a great man is to have to step over corpses. These guys are really thinking stuff like that. So um, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what a kinder, gentler kind of management of a resource, human and otherwise, I don't know what that looks like because we haven't seen a lot of it in, in America. Of course, people are doing stories about the folks at Patagonia who have made some really nice moves in terms of being good bosses. Um, I, I, I think the temptation and the problem if you're a biz school person is that for every good Patagonia story that you hear, you hear a people like the crystal meth guy who's trying to game the system, which makes them go like, yeah, why am I being nice? These people are abusing me and using me. But, you know, I, I, I prefer to think that they're good people all around us. Well, and I think too, I mean, I have a, um, I have a friend who is an executive coach and she's been in HR for many, many years, done many layoffs. Right. And she was saying that she has done layoffs at really large corporations and there's no excuse, no matter how many people that you're laying off, that you cannot speak directly to each person that is impacted. There's no, there's no reason that, you know, I mean, I'm thinking yep. in my head, like, well, if you're laying off thousands and tens of thousands of people, maybe you do have to do it via email. She's like, absolutely not. That is a cop-out. And I thought that was interesting because there clearly are systems where people can have a humane interaction at the end of yeah. their term of employment. You know, and, and again, she gave some really good examples of like seeing that a layoff is coming, giving the people that are going to be impacted months of, of warning, yeah. giving them career counseling, yeah. trying to help them find other jobs, giving yeah. them just, you know, just paying for their health insurance for a yeah. few months after they've been laid off. Because of course the problem yeah. is, is that almost all of us have health insurance that's based through our employer, which gives the employer so much power. And I think yeah. that there are ways to do it that are humane. And there have been organizations that have done that traditionally. And I think this is, this is a new twist. And the idea is somehow, again, is it the tech companies that are too big to fail? We're, we're smart and we're microdosing and this is how we're going to do things now. But I think the fundamental thing is there's no excuse to treat human beings like chattel and, yeah. and to not consider the impact on them and on their families when they're terminated. Because you can very easily just say, you know, I'm sorry, we're going to have to let you go. Here's your package. Here's a number to call somebody. And, you know, we wish you the best. Do you have any questions? I mean, you can do that for yeah. thousands of people with the HR teams that you have. So they're making a choice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I find that I find it interesting that for those of us who have been divorced in actual fact, if it's an uncontested uh, a divorce in which people are fairly amicable, it still takes like two years. No fault divorce. It still takes like two years. And that's not without a lot of real estate financial holdings, but they're just statutory things that you have to go through with the courts and things have to go through certain periods of time. 
And, you know, listen, you know, people have a lot tied up in their marriages, real estate, you know, assets and so on. So you can't tell me that it's outside of the realm of business possibilities that also these layoffs should take some time. You shouldn't be able to walk into work on Friday and an hour later find out that you don't have health insurance, that, you know, that your maternity leave has been canceled and you are unemployed and that you'll have to move at the age of 53, have to move out of your San Francisco apartment to fates unknown. I mean, come on, come on. Well, and and they do this in other countries, right? I mean, this, I think we are unique and I don't know a lot about international law, but I do know working for an international company, if there were layoffs that were happening in, you know, in Europe, it was an entirely different deal. Right. There was yep. an entirely different set of statutes rather than the kind of Wild West scenario that we're dealing with here that is that is unfortunate. And then I think that what's going to happen is people are going to start responding accordingly. And you know, yep. this whole notion of quiet quitting, quiet quitting is just doing your job and not working overtime for free. And of course, people are. Of course, people are doing that. Like the hand wringing of the quiet quitting, the quiet quitting. You know, these these young people are just not working as hard as we used to. It's like, and why should they? <laughs> you know, there's a guy I know. His job was corporate spy. By which, anytime there was a problem spot in the company, they would hire him into that spot to find out what the problem was, whether it was retention. So he was a fake employee, like a you know. And at one point, one of the managers was so hated that he, the Vietnam expression was frag, that one of the employees had intended to frag him. And as he's leaving, it was a fabrication facility, as my friend who was this detective, who I'd written about actually before, he as he's leaving the facility, he's on a catwalk in this big wafer of fabrication, and he sees the hated supervisor and one of the employees with a brick stalking him through the facility. He can see this from his from his vantage point. And I said, well, what did you do? He goes, you know, that guy was such a pox on the corporation. I just went home that night. I go, did the guy get hit? He goes, yeah, he got knocked out. I felt kind of bad. But when I filed my report, I said that this guy is clearly part of every single problem you have in your way for fabrication. So at that point, the company was like, we've got to get rid of him, but we can't get rid of him injured. And so they had to wait a bit, but they ultimately uh, got rid of him. But I said, do you feel like it was a dereliction of your duty that you didn't stop somebody from getting hit with a brick? He was like, <laughs> As you know, he wasn't he wasn't a management guy, but had been hired to do a management job. In that instance, you know, his his true nature kind of took over. It was like, yeah, the guy was horrible, 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 horrible to the people who worked for him, and nobody was stopping that guy. So, well, and you know what's interesting is it's like you know, I mean, we talk about bad bosses. That's the whole point. But the idea that you know we're talking about addicted bosses, there are people who are doing horrible, awful things, assaulting women. You know, like all of the stone cold sober. Yeah, correct. correct. And, and, and also thing, facing no consequences. Winners think first job out of college, uh, a good friend of mine, she calls in sick. Um, and she went to the doctor that day. And when she gets back to her apartment complex after having called in sick, uh, her apartment manager comes looking worried and says, are you okay? And she goes, yeah, I, I had to go to the hospital. Why? She goes, oh, your boss came by. She goes, what? Um, yeah, he, he asked me to, to, to let him into the apartment. So I, I figured her boss left the job, left the workspace, got into his car, drove over to her apartment complex, it convinced the apartment manager to let him into her apartment and, and, you know, sees that she's not there, calls her into the office when she comes in sick and says, you would think he would conceal this. He says, you know, 
is it, what does he say? He goes, is it too much to keep your place clean? <laughs> Starts criticizing the quality of her housekeeping after having broken into her apartment. And I, I go, what are you going to do? She was quitting. I'm quitting. That was that's one where you call the police. Creepy. It was inappropriate. Yeah, that's, that's one where you call the police. Clearly where you call, where you call the police. So. Yeah, right, that, I'm just gonna, this was, you know, we're, we're, we're talking the 80s, so. Yes, the, in the olden days. Although, you know, um, all right, I'm going to end with one other. Days, yes. Yeah, the battle days. I'm going to end with one other suggestion, which is try not to center alcohol and drug consumption at work. I mean, I've worked in a lot of yes. advertising agencies. They all had open bars. They all had a keg in the kitchen 24-7. Try not to do that. So that's the, that's right. the end. We'll be back. Um, we would like to get some topic ideas, and you can send those to WTF at Bad Boss Brief. Thanks a lot. That always, gets, that, that always gives me a laugh. I love that. WTF. That was the point. All right. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Later. Thank you for listening to the Bad Boss Brief with your hosts, Eugene S. Robinson and Stephanie Payrollo. You can check out more of their work by visiting consigliera.substack.com for Stephanie and Eugene S. Robinson.substack.com for Eugene. You can also find Eugene at Mr. Sleep 3, that's the number 3, on Instagram. Send us your questions or comments to WTF at BadBossBrief.com and be sure to join us right here on your favorite podcast platform for more insights every other week. Until next time. Don't be an asshole at work.